This is Clutch Fans. And by the way, shout out to the Clutch fans. You're listening to the Clutch Fans Podcast, an open conversation for Houston Rockets diehards. I'm ready to get on Clutch Fans. Now, here's your host, the man who would have drafted Harold Miner over Robert Ory, Dave Hardesty. Welcome into the podcast. I hope everyone's uh, gearing up for a nice weekend. I am honored today to have a special guest with me, um, someone who really doesn't need an introduction, certainly in the Rockets fan community, if not NBA community at large. Um, he's been with the Houston Chronicle since 1990 um, and has covered the, the uh, Rockets beat since 98, covered the Rockets championship years before that. Um, you can follow all of his daily coverage at HoustonChronicle.com. Mr. Jonathan Fagan, it's honestly an honor to be here. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Good to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thrilled, honestly. I've been wanting to talk to you uh, actually about a lot of things. I think there's nobody better out there to you know know both the Rockets' history and certainly the present. Um, you know, I kind of I think most fans as well kind of look at you as like the John McClain of of Houston basketball, like you know someone who you know, by longevity and, and, and through, you know, all the connections of the team uh, truly knows the inside and out of basketball here in, in this city. Um, I wanted to ask you, first of all, like how you got started uh, sort of in, on journalism and, and, you know, your career led you to Houston and, and covering the Rockets. Well, how I got started in journalism, it's a story I tell when I speak to classes and stuff a lot, which I haven't done a lot lately, but kind of to always see, who asks the right follow-up question? Uh, I was in college. I was studying political science and didn't really know what to do with it. I took a personality profile type test at the career planning and placement office. And it spit out, it, which then, you know, it was the number two pencil filling out the little dots. So it didn't exactly spit out. I had to go back in three days later. But it came up with uh, 12 careers, 11 were in journalism. <laughs> and when I came in to get the results, they they kind of, the people who worked there all said, oh, that's him. And they kind of came around and said, you know, it never happens like this. We've never seen this. And I had never taken a journalism course. And so I did and stayed with it. Um, and I'll just skip ahead rather than see if you ask the question. But I was working for the student newspaper a few semesters later. The guy who was supposed to cover the basketball team decided to play one more year of college lacrosse and wasn't available the day Ralph Sampson was coming to the University of Delaware. Wow. And I was playing basketball every day then, which people in, on the paper knew. So they said, well, he likes basketball. Let the cop shop guy I was covering the police beat. I okay. let him go out and do it. And so I went out and covered the game, and I never went back. I covered sports ever since. I left the cop shop the next morning. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, that's how I got into it. But obviously you could tell from bits of that story 
I've always loved basketball, uh, everything about it. And so I've been very, very lucky that I've been able to cover basketball for all these years. It's what I wanted to do. That's what I was going to follow up and ask. Is that, is that, I mean, you went into journalism, but were you thinking, I want to cover basketball, specifically the NBA? Well, when I went into journalism, no, I was just checking it out and I was covering the police beat. And so I didn't really until I covered that when I first did that. And, but yeah, I've always loved the NBA in particular and basketball. I love to play it and love watching it. I still, I cover basketball. So I'm at, let's say 90 to a hundred, depending on what kind of Rockets team it is. I'm at that many games a year on my night off. I'll watch basketball, you know, which I think a lot of people who've covered the NBA are like that. And so yeah, I, I I do love doing this. I I enjoyed covering football. In my case, college football a lot. I love the whole sort of community of everybody gathering and all of that. Absolutely. And I enjoyed that a lot. But, you know, to me, there's never a bad day in the gym. <laughs> I've felt that way a long, for a long, long time. That's awesome. You know, I have to tell my story. I can't remember if I've uh, recapped with this, this with you before, but like for me, uh, my first experience at Rockets training camp was 1999, and you know I was uh, able to to get access there. And you you may remember it was at St. Stephen's Episcopal School mm-hmm. in Austin. And you know when I was there, I was basically just like at a Beatles concert. I was you know like completely freaked out in fandom and and you know starstruck and all this and and nervous. And you know at first there's all this media there, and then you know, it kind of trickles down after the next few days. And I saw you there, but, but this was back when, you know, I knew you, but I didn't know your face or anything. Cause there was nothing on uh, Houston Chronicle kind of showing who you were. So I was nervous to approach you. And I just said, are you Jonathan Fagan? <laughs> that was the best way I could, could ask. And you hopped right up and, and uh, you know, I, I just owe you uh, a lot of thanks because I know you sort of showed me the ropes there. And, you know, I, there were so many things I was nervous about that first time I was there and, and it's looking back, it's been, you know, 23 plus years since then. And you've been through so many iterations of the Rockets. What are some of your like favorite memories of, of covering the different teams that, that uh, the Rockets have put forth? Well, I'm very fortunate that there's a lot of them. Yeah. Um, the championship years when Eddie Sefko was the beat writer and I'd come in after the final four and just sort of help out and do sidebars and stuff like that. But that was great. That was so fun. You know, what a way to start dealing with. I mean, I did a few series actually going back to when I worked in Dallas and I did some Maverick stuff. Uh, so it wasn't my first, but it felt like my first time around covering the NBA was the Rockets championship team. So, my gosh, that was great. And, you know, the league was easier to cover then in some ways, too. Yeah. You'd have so much more access. You would just walk up and you could have conversations instead of everything being an interview. So that was great. There's been different times. I enjoyed Steve Francis a lot covering him. I enjoyed, I I just really always really liked Steve. And then of course we had Charles, nobody better to cover than Charles period. (laughs) Everybody should have gotten to cover at least one season of Charles Barkley. Uh, You know, the the old story about Charles Barkley's pregame routine was get to the locker room, sit down, talk to the media for 45 minutes, and then kick everybody out. <laughs> that was his pregame workout. Right. Just, you can't beat that. Uh, there, Yao was 
so much about covering Yao was fantastic. I mean, just he was a great guy, a funny, smart, humble, gifted person. As genuine um, like you would see on TV, he was behind the scenes as well. Every bit. He was funnier behind the scenes because he more often tell the jokes in the Yao style that you would see on TV. <laughs> but uh, he, he was just quick-witted. And for a guy who learned English for the most part here, uh, he enjoyed puns and, you know, little smart remarks like that, which is really remarkable in a second language, one as different from his own uh, as English is. And so, you know, just a really bright guy, interesting person, uh, the, the grace under enormous pressure, you know, way more pressure than win game seven type Absolutely, stuff. Absolutely, yeah. This guy had life pressure on him of, of representing not just 1.3 billion people, as if that wasn't enough, but the the whole concept of his country reaching to the world and saying, okay, we're going to allow these walls to be down, and he's the representative of that. that. That's pressure. And he was so graceful in it because he just knew that I, if I'm myself, that that'll be what I need to be. Um, I, I think that in a lot of ways, that's some of my favorite times Cover more, even the better teams. Of course, you know, the, I, I started with the most cooperative coach you can imagine in, in Rudy Tom John. <laughs> yeah. So where the Basketball Writers Award for combining excellence with cooperation with the media is called the Rudy Tomjanovich Award. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. And it was a great day the day I got to call him and tell him that we named it after him. Oh, that's awesome. And then I covered Mike D'Antoni, who... Is I always said, you can give Mike D'Antoni the Rudy Tomjanovich Award every single year, and you would never be wrong. <laughs> and I told Rudy that too once, and it, I really believe that he never won it. But he was that cooperative and helpful. I could tell you stories about how cooperative he was behind the scenes, and, and so I obviously I'm really really lucky. Yeah, uh, that's that's amazing. Um, you know, as far as like guys that like you you would go to in a pinch like i need to get uh, you know something for my story i remember jason terry you had mentioned was like always really good like that i'm sure badier was probably pretty good is there some players that like through the years jump out at you like man this this is exactly what yeah. i needed oh yeah there's some there's the obvious available superstar would be cooperative but a guy like david wesley was great <laughs> um uh, john barry uh, there was a time I was interviewing uh, Bob Sura in Phoenix, and Barry and Wesley stopped the interview, got on him, and said his answers were too cliche. Give him better answers. <laughs> I mean, just could you imagine that? Uh, and yeah, you mentioned Shane, Louis Scola. Um, oh yeah, just what a guy, what a great guy. Chandler Parsons was great to deal with. Just great. You, if you had an extra question or something, or you want to clear, you call him up and ask. You know, just Ray, Dave Wesley was that way too. You know, just and there's more too that just you could. I could talk to Steve off to the side, but that was a different time. I'd go to lunch sometimes. You know, a few times a year, not always, but a few times every year with him, and um, that would happen more back then. Of course, I was closer to their age then, but. Yeah, there's so many. I'm forgetting some. Scola was great. His routine, Aaron Brooks. Uh, Scola's routine was he would go to the bench, I think it was six, seven minutes before 
straight up 60 minutes before tip uh, on the clock, sit there and you could talk to him for those five, six minutes, whatever it was. And, and then he'd get up and go. So every day you could just go out. Uh, Kevin Martin it was, <laughs> it was great that way. Um, just great. Of course, uh, you know what? We haven't even mentioned the biggest name of them all. Who's <laughs> this? The king. Oh, well, you, you wouldn't have more experience there. Would he give you? I mean, <laughs> he seemed like good, but I didn't expect him to be like giving you everything you needed. Oh, yeah. You can ask Akeem whatever you needed, uh, you know, just and he'd thank you. You know, that's the famous Akeem thing. It's after the interview, you say thank you, which I do after every interview. And he said, no, no, thank you. And he'd be like, oh, my gosh. And he would do, there was a time, we're in New Jersey, and there was something going on with the Knicks. I don't remember what it was. I don't, it's a long time since I remembered what it was. But all of the New York media wanted to come out to New Jersey to talk to Akeem. And so they each contacted me one by one. Does he talk pregame? And I said, not only will he talk, he will thank you for the interest. And so he, they all interviewed him one by one, not a group, because they didn't want to share the answers. And he did every one of those interviews. So late at night, you know, I had really late deadlines back then. And with the time difference, you know, they were on Eastern time. I had an extra hour. So it's now by like one in the morning. Each one of the media people came up to me one by one. He did. He thanked me. I tried to thank him and he thanked me. That was the king. He, he would do it every single time for 17 years. No, no, thank you. you know, that's what he believed. Um, you know, and yes, you could ask him hard questions. Of course, some of his answers were very predictable, repetitive. He had a position on things. You could, you knew before long what he would answer. But in terms of cooperative, you know, just all timer. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of the guys who go back to his era, I mean, I mentioned the Rudy T award, but for the player who combines excellence with cooperation with the media, it's the Magic Johnson award. Oh, um, wow. I didn't realize Magic was sitting The year Charles tore up his knee in Philadelphia Right, and his career is now basically over. He came back for one little cameo in, in Houston, but we knew that night his career was over. And we were going to Boston the next day, so some of the Boston media went to Philadelphia. And Charles did a press conference, a tearful press conference in Philadelphia the night he destroyed his knee. And so I'm sitting, I'm going to name drop a little bit, but... The story doesn't work without it. I'm sitting with Jackie McMullen and Bob Ryan. <laughs> okay. And I said, how many guys would have done this interview? And as if it was rehearsed, like a sitcom, they both answered at the same time. So it came out simultaneously. Magic Johnson. <laughs> that's how, you know, so it, that's a little bit. That's how guys of that era were. That no, we're going to try and cooperate with the media. That, that that's how it was. But it was interesting that the two of them, like they went one, two, three. Magic Johnson. It came out simultaneously, <laughs> as they said it. So that's that's amazing. 
Uh, you know, is there like, before I ask you about the Rockets, I want to ask you this as well. Is there like when you get the schedule, the NBA schedule, like a favorite city that you just you circle and you're like, you know, this is going to be, you know, maybe it's the arena working with the, the other team or just the city in general that you're like, that's that's the, the, the choice place to go. That's a great way to put that question, too, because I consider both of those things. Like sometimes the cities I really like uh, New York, San Francisco love the cities i like cities and i love those cities but two of the worst media seating in the league you know new york's the worst maybe the war of course the warriors they have this enormous media relations staff and they're very helpful they'll get you one-on-ones they gave me a one-on-one this year with steph curry to talk about his workouts with Jalen green and to steph's credit the his answers on the last questions were as full and good as in the first questions, but it was the media relations staff that facilitated a one-on-one with a writer from Houston with the two-time MVP face <laughs> of the franchise, but it's terrible seating. And, but I do like San Francisco. Um, you know, LA is kind of fun and it's pretty good media seats where we once considered them bad in the current world. They're pretty good. Uh, so I kind of, but I don't look for that on the schedule. I mean, first of all, what I look for on the schedule is where am I going to be Thanksgiving, Christmas, my anniversary, which falls during sure. the NBA season. The, uh, St. Patrick's Day, which is sort of my anniversary, that that was my first date with my wife is St. Patrick's Day. Oh, wow. So I look at that one. I look at those things more than the cities. Um, gotcha. I look at Toronto. I like Toronto a lot. Uh, I look at New York. New York, Boston, for sure. Yeah. Maybe I mean, a little Philadelphia. I, I look for those because I like the cities a lot. Um, and New York's your roots, but, right? That's where you're from. I, yeah. I mean, I grew up in New Jersey, originally from Brooklyn, but I grew up in New Jersey. But, you know, my brother's still there, and I see him every year when I go back. So that's part of it. And I look to see the travel. Am I coming to New York from here or will I be coming from another city where I'll have more time? Um, but I do. I admit that. I look, I still look for New York. Uh, <laughs> New still York. a Mecca, right? Yeah. Well, in, I don't garden. go for all that nonsense, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, this team has been terrible most of the time <laughs> since, well, let's just say the last 20 years. Oh, yeah. How do you feel? Well, it used to be. You'd go to the finals, and somebody from New York would ask a guy who just won, how would you like to be playing in the garden? No, I'm fine with winning a championship here, thanks. (laughs) So I don't go for all that stuff. Although when I first went, um, you know, with the Rockets, when they were there in 94, I I will say one of the practices on the garden floor where the media availability was right there on the court, and I walked out, and I got somebody to send me a pass, and I stood where Willis Reed was when he made the shots. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, just, and I took a shot left-handed. Like he, <laughs> you know, I'm righty, but I took it anyway, left-handed. Just I took the Willis Reed shot that started Game 7. That's pretty um, awesome. Yeah, back that was 94. So back then, I, and of course, the garden's totally different now. You know, they've redesigned it. Um, like, you don't have that middle tunnel where he walked in. Okay. Um but back then I did do that. But now that stuff doesn't matter to me at all anymore. Um, you know, you just lose it. You have guys you know around the league, and those are the guys you, you like covering and you wish well. It's not about 
you know, the roof at the garden or whatever. Right. So you were at the uh, lottery here recently. That's pretty much a, a prestige right there to be able to get in there. What was that experience like? Was it just like sudden death in there, like super quiet? Mm-hmm. Were these the, oh, yeah. the executives pretty much like, are they in front of computers, in front of paper, looking at paper no, combinations? No, 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 no. No, no electronics of any kind are allowed in the room. They confiscate them. Okay. They confiscated my recorder, which can't do anything but record sounds. <laughs> but no, you, you have to turn everything in. It's the second time I was in for the Yao lottery, and I was in this time. And it was really cool. I have to admit, uh, it was very cool. And it, when they start, uh, you know, everybody mills around for a little while. There's a spread, but nobody ate anything um, wow. until after. And then you mill around, you introduce yourself, small talk, whatever. A lot of those guys, especially the front office executive types, like the Rockets guy is Clay Allen, and he, he's general counsel. So he seemed to know some of the other guys in that position. Um, and they didn't talk. Okay, everybody, let's take your seats. There's a little media seating to the left. Somebody gets up, and he explains how it's going to work. And once he gets done, it is like a morgue in there, silent. Wow. It is It is just, there's nothing. There's so much at stake. And yeah, and there's so much formality in the way they do it. And they explain how it will be done. To another got a timekeeper, and he's across the room, and he turns away. So he can't see anything but a wall in his stopwatch. Oh, wow. And we're going to time when the ping pong balls come up, and they will be 20 seconds each. So he looks at his stopwatch, and when it gets to 20 seconds, he raises a hand, and the guy in the front of the room releases one ping pong ball, and he calls out the number. The team representatives, 13 of them this year, they have sheets of paper with their combinations of numbers on them. Wow, okay. So they're scrambling to look as as, as the combinations come out. And there's so Cleveland has, one, Cleveland has like one piece of paper with like one line on it or something along no, those lines. Everybody has the same paper, including us in the media. Oh, I see, but okay. It just shows whose numbers are assigned to which team or okay. what numbers are assigned to which team. So uh, there's a thousand and one numbers. So it can take a moment or two. But the guy from the NBA is super fast, and he he is really good at saying which, but which team got the combination that just ca- got called out. As it worked out this time, when it was Orlando's four numbers, the Orlando guy was still going through his paper when Clay from the Rockets already knew, and he turned to him and said, "I think that's you." Hmm. And the Orlando guy smiled a little bit, and they shook hands. And then the NBA guy announced it. Orlando Magic. Okay. And then a girl on the other side of the room, right, with good handwriting, writes it just on a large piece of paper. Wow. You know, the four numbers and Orlando. And then they do it again. Uh, and so now at the Rockets, and I'm sure we'll get to this later in the podcast, but the Rockets very much wanted to be top three. Their desire to be top three was much greater than, oh, it's got to be one or it's got to be two. They didn't want to be four or five. And certainly Clay Allen felt that way. So now number two comes out, and it's the Thunder. And Sam Presti, by the way, never even raised his head. You know, it's like no reaction from these guys. When Back when the Rockets won with the Yao Ming lottery, 
Nelson Luis raised his arm up. <laughs> he was so happy. <laughs> this time, and I will say, and I've written this so many times, people have probably read it, and I wrote, I wrote a story recently about the 20-year anniversary of the Yao Ming lottery and Yao Ming draft. And after the Rockets won that year, they dug the four ping pong balls, and it came out to Rockets numbers again. Wow, yeah. So, but so now it comes out uh, thunder and no reaction. And I did ask Sam afterwards, you were just total poker face, which he admitted that's kind of how he is anyway. But then he said, really, I was still looking up the numbers. I had my head down because I was still looking them up. <laughs> In this case, the NBA announced it, that uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder. Now we get to the Rockets, and Clay is really feeling it. Oh I'm sure. We don't get it. So he knew pretty much right away. Yes, those are our four numbers. He was real happy. He smiled, and Joel Glass from the Magic turned and shook his hand this time. And then they did the four ping pong balls again, and it came out to the Rockets again. <laughs> so they would have had it, and they're, all right, we will do it again. She writes all the numbers on the board in case anybody forgot. Um, and that, that's how it goes. But it is, And then afterwards, okay, now it's done. But they will not let you out of the room. That's what the I first figured. Time, if you had to go to the bathroom, security would escort you <laughs> and stand behind you to make sure you weren't getting word of the results out in any way. Gotcha. Um, now, are you guys watching it on TV? Is what well in there? Are you the TV's going? Now, the first half hour, you sit around just talking to each other. A couple people ate, but you know, I did a few interviews. You know, I interviewed Clay, Sam Presti. Joel Glass from the Magic, you know, we you do some interviews, and, but for the most part, everybody just mills around, talks, hangs out, and then finally the show is coming on, and everybody sits back down to watch. Gotcha. Knowing the results, of course, and so you want to see how people will react based on those results. Uh, and Rafael Stone didn't do anything. My God, <laughs> I referred to, to him in one of my stories as Rafael Stone faced uh, because he didn't do anything. Uh, and he told me, yeah, that's just me, you know. <laughs> well, it's better than last year, right, where he was at home with, what, earmuffs on and, and ignoring everything oh, and, yeah. and checking checking after the results. So I was wondering how he was going to do being there. But, you know, this year they had the pick regardless. So I'm sure he felt well, a little bit more comfortable. Fun. I will say one other part. So afterwards, now, this, now they're having a ballroom where the TV show is done, which is a different room than the little room we're locked in. Okay. Where the actual lottery takes place, they, they call the draft, uh, I forget, selection room or whatever. Um, so the big ballroom where they reveal the results, and that's what you see on television, like a thousand people. And I go rushing in there once they let us out of the room, and I got my phone and watch and recorder back. Um, you know, they confiscate your watch even. And so I get those things back and I run down the hall and get in there and I can't find him anywhere. There's like a thousand people. And I finally get him in the hallway while he's waiting for his lift. And I've interviewed him for a few minutes and then Clay comes up. And that's the first time Rafael really big smiled when he saw Clay. And he said, thanks, Clay. Good job. <laughs> and took a picture. 
But that was the only time that was really that night. The only time I saw him look really happy when he saw Clay. <laughs> well, that's awesome. You know, you said something in there. I, I was going to ask you what it was like coming out of that room, if you could make eye contact. But it's that's interesting that you guys never did leave. So, I mean, until obviously the, the results were announced. But, you know, you mentioned well, that I'm not allowed in there before the results. Are, I'm not allowed out of the room. Right. That's what exactly. And I, for some reason, I had envisioned that, it, you know, you guys would come out, but you had to be quiet or stay somewhere and, you, you know, eye contact. But, but no, that's that makes sense to, for you guys to stay in there. But you mentioned the Rockets really wanted to be top three as far as, you know, in this draft. And that, uh, you know, does make sense with the three bigs that are there. <clears throat> Do you think that they consider these three guys very equal similar or do you think there's any you know desire to move up a spot two spots uh, anything along those lines or is it pretty much hey we're good with any of these guys any three well they, those are two different questions they're absolutely good with any of the three now whether as they do the work they will determine gosh we wish we could get a guy who will probably be gone uh, now you know it's a week in a couple of days since the lottery. So yeah. maybe they've reached that conclusion. I don't think that will happen. Um, the feeling I got is the way to look at this draft. And I think the way they feel and other teams that I talked to in Chicago feel that the last year, there was a couple of guys at the very top, maybe a few more with a chance someday to be found life-changing type players. The sure. guys with potential to be the best player on the best team. There is a chance of that with these guys. The chances of that are never good, including last year. Jalen Green could be that, but there's not that many who ever become that. Sure, the odds are against it, but the odds are unusually high for Jalen Green or Cade Cunningham. The odds aren't as high, but there is a chance but it's not as good a chance for Jabari Smith or Paolo Bencaro or Chet Holmgren. Sure. But there is a chance. Is the difference of that chance, let's say the Rockets decide, as you have, that Jabari Smith has the best chance of being that. Sure. I don't think they would view his chance of being that as so much greater than the guy they will take at three that you're going to spend a whole lot to increase your chances by that small bit. That, that makes total sense, actually. Yeah, and it's – I have to admit I was hoping to be top two. You know, the Rockets would be top two for Jabari or Chet. But, I mean, I think Paolo has really good potential um, and, you know, could be a really good addition along with Jalen Green. So – and I think there's, you know, possibility that he could do more than he showed at Duke, right? I mean, he showed – you know, great promise there, but they also have a lot of talent and, you know, maybe he could be used more or in a different way even. So I, well, mean, I think the talent they have might have limited him defensively more interesting. Um, because they, they sort of allowed everything to go funnel into the big center. I don't think they demanded of him what the Rockets would have to demand of him and of his potential strengths defensively, which he does have. Um, he's going to have to be better, but he has some tools to be better. Uh, I, I think they will expect more of him on that end uh, than Duke did. Uh, sure. And so, yeah, I, I don't think he was held. I think offensively, he was really good. You watch a gaming, that's the best player on the court. In fact, I've said this before. I, I, I don't know if everybody agrees. 
and it's really not the point anyway, but I think he's the best player in the draft. Do you? Really? But, but who cares if he's the best player in the draft? That's not what it's about. It's who's going to be the best player in the draft. Oh, sure. It's okay, not, now I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, who's the best player in, in June? Well, that's really not the point. Right. Especially picking that high. But it's a good starting point. You know, and, and as you know, if I had the first pick of this draft, at least right now, I, I feel I would take Jabari Smith. That, so me saying that somebody else is the best player in the draft, the, yeah, but that doesn't mean that's who you take first. Right. But yeah, it's not a bad starting point. It's, <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. And for me, what I think what surprised me was – I thought there would be enough uh, of variance and opinions, different ideas from some of these teams that you might see Paolo get traction at one and two. And we may still see that between now and the draft. But, boy, that came out really fast, like Jabari Chet or Chet Jabari. It was just like mm. it's, it almost seemed yeah, like they turned the three to two. I'm skeptical on some of that, even though that's how I did my mock draft, uh, too. I, I did those three in order, Smith, Holmgren, Van Carroll. But – Sam Presti is great at keeping his secrets. You know, just I always go back to one of my best sources telling me of the Russell Westbrook trade before the very day of the trade. And I didn't report it, but and probably I didn't report it because I hurt my back that day. Mm. But, um, yeah, I worked out in Las Vegas that day. But he told me Sam is going to slow walk this one. This is going – everything I'm hearing is this is going to take a long, long time. Yeah, it took until later in the day. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm glad I didn't report that one. But that said, Presti is known for being very good at holding his cards tight. So for everyone to say he's taking Chad Holmgren, oh, yeah, he's going to take Chad Holmgren, I'm not so sure everyone knows. Yeah. But wait. You know, I, I kind of got in touch with some of the people that I talked to. Hey, can I call you in a few weeks? And I want to wait a few weeks and try and see what people are then saying. Sure. But I will say this, and I reported this, and I said it on my podcast, which, by the way, people can get at HoustonChronicle.com every Tuesday, except for this Tuesday. It's awesome. Um, yeah, I love it. I listen to it. It's great. I appreciate that. Um, but So you've heard this already, but – the night of the lottery. So I go rushing in that room. I can't find Rafael, but I talk to a few people, a few agents, a few front office types. You know, you guys in the media are all thinking this is all so sure thing. One, two, three. This is each of you hearing from each other and front office people hearing from you who then hear it from each other. By the end of Chicago, some of the same people were saying, yeah, I think that's it. I think that's the one, two, three. I think those guys. So... <laughs> That's a great point. Just assumptions I, I, at that point that it sure seems like there's a wide expectation that the three big men are the first three. Let me ask you on number 17, you know, the Brooklyn pick the Rockets have. Do you feel like this is like a position they're just fine picking there? Or is this like trade up, trade out is maybe a higher priority for what they're doing. I would be surprised. And I have to admit, I hadn't asked much about trade out. I hadn't considered that. And I haven't asked much about that trade up. Yeah. I mean, what we saw the Rockets do, what we saw Rafael do because they wanted Shangun and they knew they couldn't wait anymore. 
does indicate they would do such a thing. Um, that's a pretty strong indication they'd do something again if they needed to. Generally, when you're picking in that range, which is seven picks or six picks sooner than the Rockets pick had they waited for Shangun last year, hmm. if you're at 17 as they are, rather than 23 as, and 24 as they were last year, very often the guy you're targeting, or maybe two guys you think, oh, I really hope he slips, somebody, or there's a group that's larger than two, and you hope one of those gets out to you. Rather than move up, you think, yeah. There is a chance hmm. that somebody from among, I don't know, Branham, Agbaji, Eason, maybe Jalen Williams, Ty Ty Washington, maybe somebody likes Jovic that much. You think one of those guys is going to get to us. It's not until things start playing out and a couple of them are off the board, you think. So to think about doing a trade up now I think it's more you arrange, okay, who would talk to us if we feel the need yeah. during the draft? And that's kind of it. They have to lay the groundwork of all these deals. Because, I mean, you've got, what, five minutes between picks? You can't, like, negotiate a trade between them. You've almost got to have the the groundwork laid. Like, if you know, like the Rockets in 06 when, you know, uh, Brandon Roy wasn't available and they didn't they weren't going to take Rudy Gay. They, they had the trades in place beforehand. Is that kind of how mm -hmm. these draft day deals go down? Oh, absolutely. I mean, maybe there's some tweaking of protection. It depends on what kind of draft. I mean, trade, obviously. But you might tweak protections. You might add a future second or the protections that will make it a second you'll actually receive versus one you won't probably get. Those kinds of little things might happen in the five minutes, but not much, you know, obviously, because of, of the time. Uh, and you get as many of those potential deals at least the framework to where you know they won't take it or they will take this. You, you go in knowing that kind of stuff. Um, and you have more than one guy. It's not just Rafael on the phone. Uh, so, uh, but I, you know, I don't know this, but, and I don't think Rafael knows this. If he was on with you, I don't think he would know right now. <laughs> but I, I think it's more, see how that draft goes. And if one of the guys we'd love to get at 17 is still there, all right, hang on. And if they all start going, say there's four or five, they really like it, that area, and three are already gone, four are gone, or there's a team, okay, we're down to the one, and we think they'll take him. We got to get up in front of them, which was the Sangoon thing. We got to get up there. Then you then you have to be ready to move, yeah. and I think they would, judging from what they did last year. You know, and as far as like what they have on the roster, I mean, do you think that they need to consolidate, um, kind of create roster spots just because they do have they have quite a bit of young talent that you know requires playing time for growth, um, and they're 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 adding two new rookies. Is that kind of a, a pressing need, or are they just like we're good? Well, there's different parts of that answer because as we know they didn't want a third first round pick this year because of that right that they had five rookies last year four were drafted but they consider Knicks a first rounder they consider him a lottery pick so five rookies last year two this year do you uh, and really two the year before last year so they have two guys who are going to be in their third year that's a lot of young guys 
you and you want to play them as we saw last year. So no, I don't think they want more young guys than that. I'm not sure they're feeling like we got to move some, but they're, you know, it's a pretty crowded roster with 13 guys under contract. That said, and that's why I said there's many parts to this answer. That said, what we know of Rafael Stone is he'll put, this is what I think I should be able to get if I make this trade, if I trade this guy. Yeah. This is the price I'm putting on it. And he's not going to budge until there's a reason that he has to. You know, like, okay, if it's trade deadline of an expiring guy, P.J. Tucker a couple of years ago. All right, I have to get what I can get. And they also did that for him in that case. They, they did him a solid. But, no, i got to get what I can get. Until yeah. he gets to i got to get what I can get stage, he'll put what he thinks is the right price, and he's not going to feel pressure to act sooner than he wants to. Yeah, that's an interesting philosophy because I, I did. I was shocked, uh, pretty stunned that they didn't trade Gordon at the deadline. But I, you know, understand the logic now. Um, I mean, we're already seeing in this draft. I think some teams in the twenties wanting to move it for a future pick, which is is going to be a little bit difficult. So I can understand, uh, you know, not taking just a, a pick in the twenties for Eric Gordon. He's, he he values him higher. But I I just wonder, do you expect, you know, Christian Wood and Eric Gordon to be here next year? Or I mean, just this no knock on Christian and Eric, but more just, you know, given the team direction and some of the the guys that they're, you know, bringing in rookies, I'm assuming they're adding a big, is that going to be an issue? Different answers because of what you said is if you're adding Ben Caro to Shangoon and you value Tate and they really do. uh, And KJ Martin, needs to be considered yeah. and you don't know what goose uh, uh group is going to be yet and so that's quite a few bigs if you worded it let's say separate the two players gordon and wood yeah do you expect them on the team yeah chances are do you expect let's say wood to finish the year on the team i'm not so sure about that one <laughs> right. you know because unlike you know eric is kind of an expiring contract and if you want him to be he is assuming the Rockets aren't winning the championship next year I think it's safe to assume <laughs> so you could trip but he's not technically he's not an expiring contract um Christian Wood is he has an expiring contract this is the last year of it uh and it's not his fault they had the worst record in the league the last two years but he wasn't the solution to prevent that either right uh and so do you, do you continue to build with him? Do you keep your bird rights to him and keep him and sign him again as a free agent? Maybe you let, oh, get another half year of evidence if you don't get like some really good offer that you want, whatever you consider to be really good. But you get to the trade deadline. If you're a lottery team and it's a trade deadline and he's an expiring contract, you know, I would think that it's a much greater probability that he doesn't finish the year than the probability that he doesn't start the year on the roster. With Gordon, it's easy to see him in the Kevin Love mold. Now, it's easier to see him somewhere else because of where he is in his career and how he fits with anybody, any contender. He's good on the ball. He's good off the ball. He defends multiple positions. You can start him. You can put him off the bench. You can do so many things. you got to think he's valuable to contenders. But... You could see the Rockets thinking the only thing that keeps you from saying there's a decent chance of him being their Kevin Love off the bench 
their solid veteran that everybody thought would get moved but didn't. Cavaliers were a playoff contender this year. The Rockets probably aren't that next year. Right. That's the big thing that gets in the way of that. But he's such a model citizen for them uh, that, you know, he works hard in every way, not just he's good at practice, his training, his reliability every day, his attitude about whatever role you have. But all that said, yeah, but if you're not a playoff team, what's the point? Get you know I don't know if it's quite get something for him but I they view him at this level they didn't get offers that corresponded with how they view him but you got to think the offers will be at some point pretty attractive and and that's kind of what what I was uh, hoping that the that would be the case as well with Christian Wood it's kind of tough because if their goal is to move from let's say seventeen up. You're only dealing with a select few teams in the lottery that are, you know, hoping to win now or, or get to the playoffs next year. You, you know, you got Portland, and I thought I thought Sacramento jumping up into the top four, not much, but hurt the Rockets a little bit because that was a team that also is trying to make the playoffs next year, and you know that that may have moved out of a value range where the Rockets could move up to to get that pick. So it's I think it's tough to to you know sort of put those guys out there on the block to move up into the draft, but I, I hope I'm wrong. Well, there's that, but also let's say you want to use Christian Wood. Uh, I, I think he's better than a sweetener, but just to use that term sure. as a sweetener, let's say you want to move up to Cleveland at 14, you know, a, a team that expects to be a playoff team. Yeah. So you're only moving up three spots. Well, they got to send something back. They're over the cap. You're over the cap. You know, do you want that? Now you got something back that you got to pay, but you can't play. That's why you can't play enough Christian. So it gets complicated, and you're not the only team that might want to move up somewhere or make a deal. Right. So it gets really hard. And then I, I believe, and I had a few general managers reluctantly agree that this is how they are. They don't change their minds much. Yeah. So a guy like Christian Wood, who was – overlooked and undervalued for a long time. Okay, he's better than the way they viewed him, but they don't change their minds much. The same guys who passed on him six times, are they going to give up a lot for him this time? You bring up a great very point. stubborn. Yeah. And they, I had a couple of guys when I said that, where I was kind of shooting my mouth off and I probably went too far, but I had a couple of guys. Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> But, you know, it's it's funny you say that because I remember you telling me this um, a year or two ago, you know, with Daniel House. And, again, I don't mean to out you uh, mentioning any players, but, like, you know, we saw that when the Rockets, um, you know, let Daniel House go. He was on a relatively cheap deal, but nobody picked it up. And he went and yeah, signed his thing. Yeah, and so, so, so many teams, like you said, they probably have their scouting report filed, and it's very difficult to, to change that. Although – the Jazz seemed to value him last year. Yeah, that's but, a, he, he played a good role. Yeah, I mean, the first time the Rockets did that with Daniel House, coincidentally, we were in Salt Lake City, and they wanted to convert him. They were gonna, they needed a roster spot for Gary Clark to have a standard contract, and so they uh, waived Daniel House with the intention of signing him to a two-way, and so for two days, nobody picked him up. You know, he sat around waiting to go back to the Rockets. 
And you always think, why? This guy's great value. He nearly made the Warriors uh, a team that's known to, to recognize and develop young players. But again, it goes back to you can change their minds in some to some degree. But if you're a role player, it's really hard to get them to completely abandon everything they once thought. You mentioned a couple of rookies here, and they are kind of the forgotten guys for a lot of fans. If, if I heard you right, I think you said the Rockets view Dacian Nix as a lottery pick. Is that do they view him as that Absolutely. kind of? Wow, they they they're that high on him. Yes. Wow, that's that's actually great to hear. Um, I, I yeah, thought he, really well, and, and the argument goes, he had his first year in the G League, and it, he was off the bench, didn't play that well. If this year in the G League was that year, he's absolutely a top 10 pick. If if he was an Ignite player, and we've seen, you know, Kaminga and Jalen Green, this year's guys, uh, some of which are, I think, maybe moving up a little bit in the draft. If that was all your evidence, was this year play in the G League when he was still a teenager? So it's not like, well, yeah, sure, you're getting older, you play better than the young, young kid. No, he was 19. If you had this year in the G League as your evidence, sure, he's a top 10 pick. Well, that's sort of okay, but you are also ignoring he didn't do that much with the Rockets. You know, he had a few cups of coffee and, you know, he didn't show what he showed with the Vipers. But if you look at that, you look at his size and he's pretty quick on his feet for a big man like that. He works hard. I talked to Mahmoud Abdel Fattah about him a little bit yeah. in Chicago. He absolutely loves him. The work ethic, the attitude, the, the team mindset, just loves the guy. Um, and so he, that's a top 10 pick, no question, if that was the only evidence you had. You know, the measurables and his play this year in the G League. Oh, that's extremely encouraging to hear that. You know, you mentioned well, there's other evidence too, so that's sort of a convenient way to look at it. You, but I'm just saying that you can understand the logic. Yeah, I mean, I would also always add, yeah, but he did come up with the Rockets, and it didn't go so well. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, you know, you um, mentioned uh, Abdul Fattah, who you know they won the championship in RGV. Uh, players rave about him. The Rockets now have three vacancies at assistant coach. Um, is that, are you expecting him to come up or what are they looking for in general in, you know, as far as changing this, this team or outlook in, in the assistant coaches they hope to bring on? Uh, I do think he's going to be on the staff. Uh, it's not done. And so maybe that's a reason to wonder, maybe it won't happen uh, because why, wouldn't it get done when you already have the job opening? But, yeah, I know that they really like him. Steven really likes him. Remember, he goes to camp and summer league with the team, so they do know him. He's not. They're not just looking at the Vipers. Uh, they've worked with the guy. And a uh, really good offensive mind. That said, what they're looking for is someone – I don't want to say run the defense. The, the feeling I've gotten from some of the people I've talked to outside the Rockets um, – this week is is defensive minded guy, a guy who will be a, a voice and, and creative defensive mind. But it wouldn't be the Jeff Bizdelic style uh, of where Mike D'Antoni says, you run the defense. OK. And in Mike's case, he even said, what do you need to practice today? 
and you got it. You know, how much time? What do you want to do? Mike, that came first with Mike was despite his reputation was the defense. But Bizdelic, it was your baby. I don't think it's going to be that. And again, I didn't get this from anybody but the Rockets. So what do other people know? But they want a defensive guy, but not necessarily your defensive coordinator. Gotcha. That makes sense. So that, well, I mean, part of that is you can't hire a guy to be associate head coach or quote unquote lead assistant because you already have that. So maybe that's the distinction that people outside the organization make. Well, you're not just giving him the defense because he's not going to have that title. I don't know if that's the case, but yeah, defense, defense, defense. And, and they were dead last last year, uh, obviously in defense. And I know, you know, wins, losses weren't, isn't the priority. And I assume that's probably going to be the same case um, this coming season before they switch gears pretty heavily uh, heading into 23, 24, but yeah, defense is the one area where it feels like they really need to make a, a stride forward. Well, it is. Uh, now, I'd say they did make some strides after the All-Star break when they emphasized it more. And that's playing the kids even more. I think they were 19th from the All-Star break on, which isn't great, but it's a whole lot better than 30th. And the fact that they were 30th for the year, even though they were, if I'm remembering right, 19th after the All-Star break, Boy, they must have been bad <laughs> for the All-Star break. The problem with that is, okay, but now you're playing to play two more rookies. And so I don't care who you are. Like Chet Holmgren, you know, potential Rudy Gobert at the rim. Yeah, well, you're not going to be good as a rookie. Right. That's how it is. <laughs> yeah, with okay, defense. It's, it's a hard job. And you mentioned Garuba. Is he progressing? I mean, I know we didn't even get, really get to see him much at all. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about how Bancaro wouldn't fit with Shangun, but, I mean, Garuba's kind of like the forgotten guy a little bit. Is he maybe a good fit with Bancaro if he's making strides? Well, it's hard to say what strides he's making. Uh, you know, obviously they're working, and I guess they can see some things, but when your best thing is defense, until you're into – you know, a team concept of, of schemes. 23rd, by the way, after the All-Star break. They were 19th for a while. They fell back to 23rd okay. after the break. Um, so I, I don't know what strides he's made since the season ended. Um, and plus he's going to play for his national team, so they won't have him the whole time. But uh, he is a factor. Now, they played him as a center last year. And, and you see, to me, that's where... Where do you improve and what do you take from these playoffs? And I think the answer is the same. You have to have to really be able to have a switching defense these days. That's what the te these teams don't do it all the time, but they have it. And it's a big part of what they do. You have to be able to have guys who can defend multiple positions. Yeah. And that's where Garuba comes in. And when they played him at center, they said, okay, change the defense. It's not the same defensive scheme they used with Alperin Shingun on the floor. Switch everything. And he looked pretty good at it. Uh, I think Bencaro can be good at that. You know, I don't know about him as rim protection. He doesn't seem to have great awareness defensively and great high energy, you know, switch, help, do a, not switch, but help cover, you know, in that thing. 
help the helper, all that stuff. They're going to have to teach him. The, it took half the year for the Rockets' young guys to learn how to be the low man um, at all. And so he'll have to learn that. But he moves his feet really well. Uh, and he's big, strong guy and yeah, very agile. And so can he be a switching big man? Garuba certainly shows potential to be a switching big man. Kevin Porter Jr., who is much better defensively than his first year, not what you'd call a stopper or anything like that, but <laughs> better than the first year. He can be a switching guy. Jalen Green improved as much defensively as he did offensively. Really Nobody did. talked about it, but he improved a lot. Yeah. When he sat back down, the defense hurt. They were missing him. So if how to get to be good, I don't know how you make it work entirely with Shingun, but that's the path. And it's, a good thing too, because what we've seen is you got to be able to do that. But that seems to be the path, as opposed to if if it's Gobert, where Gobert, <laughs> if it's Holmgren and you want to do a drop coverage Gobert style, where of course they've had a great defense building around him. Yeah. But that's very different from what I think the Rockets are going to have to do. You know, it's funny. Every playoffs too, we we see some. I don't want to say new trend, but something gets reinforced as being more important now. I remember last year, everyone talked about guards, 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 uh, you know, after Devin Booker. And this year, it feels like, you know, we're probably on the cusp of seeing the number one and the number two defense go head to head in the finals. And it just, you know, and the way Luka's been hunted in, in, uh, in that series and Chris Paul at times in the previous series, it's, it's sort of been that, like you just mentioned and reinforced, you got to have a, a strong switchable defense. And it feels like it's trending that way where if you have any weak spots in the armor, they're going to, they're going to find it and exploit it in a seven game series. Right. And you look at the, the old concept of you got to have the seven foot rim protector. And I still believe that can work too, but you got Looney, Dwight Powell, Maxi Kleber, uh, they were going Grant Williams when Robert Williams was hurt. And even Robert Williams isn't a towering guy, super high energy, um, almost as much high energy, but not real tall as Bam Adebayo. I mean, who of the teams that are still playing, who's relying on Rudy Gobert? Yeah. And nothing against him. You can have a great defense with him. But I think one thing we've learned is that's not the only way. So, yeah, traditional rim protector may be, I don't want to say phasing out, but, uh, you know, if that's your only job, then that's, yeah, you're you're maybe not quite as, uh, you know, hip to the new trends in the NBA as, as well. Um, Although I'm a guy who's often said, but you need that too. I, I, you know, I believe, you can, like when the Rockets went small ball and everybody was so critical of it, first of all, it was exaggerated because, Okay, you know, the first game they started real slow, but then Covington was taller than six foot five PJ Tucker. But they went small ball and they wanted to do nothing but small ball. We got rid of Isaiah Hartenstein and obviously they made the trade of Capella. I think you need options. The more things you're really good at, the better. Hmm. And so that said, I think somewhere on the roster, if you have a really big guy, I, I I know you're not going to stop Embiid from being Embiid, but you don't need to take Jonas Valanciunas and turn him into Embiid or Nurkic and turn him into Jokic, you know, because (laughs) you don't have a big guy. I think somewhere in there, it's good to have that. The more things you're good at, the better. 
you know, when the Rockets were shooting all threes and people were so, can't win, live and die by the three. No, there's nothing wrong with being great at that. That's good. But it's good to have more things. And they did have more things they could be great at. And then he messed up his hamstring. But, you know, it's, it, it, you can be great at whatever. But it's good to have options. That's what we're seeing with the Warriors, that they they don't have to only play one lineup or one way. Yeah, and I think almost, you know, as Rocket fans, we kind of come from the Harden years, too, a little bit, right? Like, have that elite special talent, spread the floor with shooters and defenders, and, uh, you know, have that person create. And so I think, you know, looking at this current Rocket team, you know, we struggle to see the primary. Who's the primary? And, and now we're going to go with four different guys who can create for, for other players, you know, if they do draft Bancaro. So it's almost like a different way of building um, the team. And so, yeah, they've got to build a strong defense, but it's going to be interesting to see what kind of offensive schemes they run with, you know, three, four players that are extremely gifted offensively, but may maybe have some questions uh, defensively. Yeah. Well, they're going to have to get better defensively, whether they have questions or not. And that includes Bancaro if they get him. I think, you know, that's, What's he going to be early and then what can he be? But you bring up a really good point that it's not sort of the Akeem James Harden offense where everybody works in orbit of the superstar. And he draws double teams and that creates the shots for Kenny Smith or Trevor Ariza or, you know, Mario Ellie or. uh, Absolutely. uh, Thank you. Yeah, you got me. You know, it's not. You know, just get the double team. P.J. Tucker hit that shot in the corner. Pat Beverly hit the shot because they had to double team the superstar you play with. But going back to the Warriors, if you have two big men who are exceptional passers, and I think you can feel fairly confident that Shingun is and Van Carroll will be, can Kevin Porter Jr. and Jalen Green move without the ball well? And do more cutting and, and relocate. Even if after they relocate and get the ball back from the big man, they still do something off the dribble, which certainly we know Jalen Green will. Yeah. That's a different offense, but it's kind of cool to think about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for one thing, having great passing is rarely a really bad thing. You know, that like being it's like being a great rebounder not only translates from one level to the next most reliably passing is close behind if you're a great passer and if you can make them just move the ball pass not just the i drove drew the defense and did a flashy no look no you read things right and moved the ball that's rarely a bad thing that's like always helpful always good you can build a good offense around lots of great passers yeah, that's it's going to be interesting to see what Steven Silas can come up with. And, you know, he's mentioned, uh, you know, this offseason that he expects things to get a little bit more advanced or, or, you know, progress as far as the kind of things that they run next year. So it's going to be it's going to be a fun season. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this offseason, to be totally honest with you, Jonathan, because I, um, I think it's the one before the one. Right. I think two, 2023 offseason yeah. is the is the big one. But it's like, uh, you know, I think they're they're they got the second pick last year, the third pick this year. I mean, it's gone pretty darn well. Um, and, you know, they're they're going to be in a decent position next year, I would think, for draft picks. And then everything shifts. We're, we're out of the end. Well, and the big thing is they have a ton of cap room, um, not this summer, but next. 
to where do you have to get do you have to be viewed as a team on the rise? Because there's not a ton of superstar or even up and coming star talent in that next free agent class. Yeah. So do you have to be viewed as they're a team on the rise? In other words, you can't have one more year of really lousy, really worse than the league area, and then hope to effectively use that cap room. That's good. They've been disciplined. They've made sure they have that room. That's nice, but the key is being able to effectively use it. And I kind of wonder if you've got to be viewed as a team on the rise to have someone want to take your money. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I always use the example. You, I know you remember this. I mean, the Rockets had that three-way trade with Chris Paul involved, and, and they were giving up the bulk of the assets to New Orleans. And Chris Paul, you know, they were dying for a start at that time, and Chris Paul wasn't going to Houston. He was going to the Lakers. And the same thing, uh, you know, they tried to get Dwight Howard, and, and he didn't want to come here. And then they get James Harden. They're on a team on the rise. And then both of these players at later dates – you know, willingly choose to come here to the Houston Rockets. So it is, uh, it's an important thing that, like you just mentioned, they, they need to be seen as a team that, that can win over the next, you know, few years or on, on the path to that. Well, especially there's, there's shorter contracts now than there were back, I don't know, whatever number of years ago where you're seven year contracts. Well, if you're signing a four year contract, you want to win during those four years. Well, if you're the worst, if you're joining the team with the worst record in the league, do you really think you're going to win a championship in the next four? You've got to be viewed as joining a team worth joining. You know, that, that your examples are great. And I always think of the Trevor Ariza one oh, where yeah. they Trevor was a, a hot commodity. They had just won the championship in L.A. and LeBron wanted him to join the Cavaliers. Brandon Roy wanted him to join Portland, and he viewed the Rockets as the team on the rise and joined them instead as a free agent. And you could say, well, that's Trevor Ariza, the epitome of a role player. Well, yeah, but he was still a coveted free agent at that time. And so can they be viewed next summer as they were that summer? That's a great point. Hey, Jonathan, this was awesome. I mean, I'm serious. I cannot thank you enough. This is just such great information. Everyone's going to love this. I think everyone here is following you, but I just want to mention Jonathan underscore Fagan on Twitter. Um, and you mentioned the podcast you do with Danielle Lerner. It's fantastic. Um, at HoustonChronicle.com. Is there anything else that you, you know, where, where people can find you? Well, my stuff gets, is always, thank you for mentioning that. Uh, yeah. It, uh, my Twitter account, uh, I, I usually will tweet links, but even if I don't, there's the automated one, too. And so you can always get a link to all of our stuff uh, just from my Twitter account, Jonathan underscore Fagan. And HoustonChronicle.com has all that good stuff, and uh, we have some things coming up. But uh, and this is the year I'm going to get the whole first round right in one of my mock drafts. So that that's good. We'll look forward to it. I'm gonna, you know, I think last year – was maybe I was as far off as you get one or two messes you up and just all right the whole thing blew up I know I got the first two right actually I got the first three right last year and then I stopped keeping track so I, I batted one thousand but I just yeah. went through for exactly yeah they're tough man if someone throws a curveball like Giddy or or you know Barnes going four instead of five and and everything else just kind of snowballs from there. Well, it's like my last mock draft. I had Eason go 16, one in front of the Rockets. Well, if I'm right about 
the general area, he could be there for the Rockets. He could go 14. He could go 50, you know, <laughs> and still you feel like, yeah, you got that pretty close to right. And uh, so that's why the mock draft's a little bit silly. It's really about the range of guys where they might go. And that's Once a, you get past the first three. When you do your mock, by the way, and I don't mean to ask you this last question, but when you do your mock, do you say to yourself, I, I'm doing this where I think they are the best player for that team, or I'm trying to use my information saying this team is going to pick this player. That's what I've heard. Or, yeah, all information. But the thing that I try to do, that I think when you read the mock drafts, you hear, you read so much of, well, the Hornets could really use a center. So Mark Williams makes great sense. And these teams, they always tell you, we're going best player available, we're ignoring need. And I think they often do. Yeah. But you have to write something. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what you end up writing. I don't know that the people who do mock drafts are overdoing the fit consideration or if that's just what they write when they do it. But I try to think of tendencies of the decision makers and I, when I ask questions of the people that I talk to around the league, that's what I ask them. Tendencies of different general managers or decision makers rather than roster. And now maybe that's partly because I don't need some expert to tell me who's on the roster. I can look that up. But I try as much as possible when I do a mock to ignore the needs for the most part, you more you, you consider those things more and more as the round goes on. But I, I just think too many of them look need, need, need. I certainly think that's the case when people talk about the Rockets. Yeah. You're... Need, they, what they need are people who are good at basketball, <laughs> you know, really good at basketball. It's not about who fits with Jalen Green yet. Yeah. You know, it... they, if you, you're really, really good, that's when they should want to take you. Well, the joke that I've been running with in it, because I've seen this several times, it's Rocket fans. You know, some of them will be like, hey, we have to go best player available, period. And then you say, well, what do you think about Jaden Ivey? And they're like, ah, we don't need a guard, right? <laughs> so immediately it's like, well, best player available has its limits, I guess, uh, for some things. But, yes, uh, I think the Rockets, you just nailed that, in my opinion. They they need talent, period. So uh, Well, and, and then in the case, like, yes, you don't want to take a guy and then not be able to play him because you have so many at the same position. And that's why getting the third pick is so fortunate for them that it happened this year because the third last year they took a two guard who really needs to play that position. And that's his position. Well, Hey, look, the guys who are considered the right pick, the, the value picks at number three, aren't that, you know, there's something different. And really, if you really value Shangun and you view him as a center, well, good. The, the guys who, Probably you're choosing at three aren't a center either. So they got lucky. Um, but still, best player available. Well, it would have been interesting if the Rockets were fourth or fifth to see which way they would have gone. But I'm glad we don't. Well, that would have worked out, too. Yeah, they would have come you up know, with something. The, of course, but the thing about that one. All right. Forget the fit stuff. It, like you could try and be happy about it by thinking, oh, that guy's going to become a superstar someday. So we're good with it. I don't know if it's true, but at least you could tell yourself that. <laughs> 
Jonathan, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Would love in the future to do it again sometime. And like I said, everyone, go to HoustonChronicle.com. Uh, Jonathan's been doing this for almost 25 years, as far as the, you know, longer than that, but as far as the, the beat reporter for the Rockets and uh, brings it every single day. I've never gone to a Rockets event in any capacity and not seen Jonathan there. So thank you again, Jonathan, and uh, hopefully do it again in, in the future. Anytime. I enjoyed it. 